Veterans Day always moves me. In light of what's happened in the last week, I've had more calls and more texts than I can remember. And uh, the temperature of the thing was, uh, I don't know, a mixture of anger and fear and depression and, and uh, a lot of different things in light of this last election season. And uh, I just thought it might be good for me to remind you of a few things today. And um, these wonderful veterans that have sacrificed so much in order for you and I to have the freedoms that we possess. I, I have a very personal connection with that sacrifice. I, I was named after my uncle who, who died. Uh, he was probably out of a boat for 15 minutes and died along with an awful lot of other young men years ago. And uh, I proudly display that Purple Heart in my home along with the few relics I have from him and from my dad's military service. I was at a gun show and I saw a, a Congressional Medal of Honor for sale. Um, $400 for uh, our nation's highest award for uh, gallantry in harm's way. I asked the man, where in the world did you get this? And he told me, he said, I have 12 of them. And uh, said, people die, people get divorced, kids don't care. And uh, there's only one president that's ever earned the Medal of Honor. That's uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Only one woman has ever earned it. Her name was Mary Edwards. She was awarded it in the Civil War because she, under fire, bravely did everything she could to save the lives of Union and Confederate troops during the Civil War. Um, the youngest recipient of the Medal of Honor was a, an 11-year-old boy by the name of Willie Johnston, who was a drummer and... Um, when his regiment was running in retreat from the Confederate troops, his commander told the men, throw away everything you possibly can that'll stop you from running. And so everyone threw away their rifles and their pistols and their bayonets, everybody except Willie. Willie hung on to his drum and his drumsticks. Abraham Lincoln heard about him and called him to the White House and gave him the Medal of Honor. The stories are, are legion and they're all amazing. If you've never read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, I would strongly urge you to read it. Stories of men who fought bravely in the Second War and came home and silently returned to their jobs. Many of them Many of their families never knew, they never knew uh, the price these people had paid. Not long ago, we buried a veteran here. His name was Homer Sexton. While going through his memorabilia, 
right before he passed, they uh, had a picture of his fellows that he, um, I guess you would call it graduation from Paris Island. He was in the Marines. There were over 300 in that picture. And one of his children said, Daddy, why didn't you tell us about this? Why didn't you show us these pictures? They have, they have reunions for these things. And we could have taken you and you could have met some of these people that you served with and that you went to boot camp with. And Homer, with tear-filled eyes, simply looked at his family and said, uh, I was the only one that came back. There weren't any to go visit. He told me right before he died, he said uh, he was in the Korean War. He said, Pastor Hoffman, if they would have just given me more bullets, I'd have won that war. (laughs) Times are different now. And uh, we have come to what I, I am calling the age of consequence. Predatory financial systems violence, abject poverty, not for millions, but for hundreds of millions of people. We just passed 8 billion people on the earth two weeks ago. A looming environmental fallout. They're all converging at a time when government and religion and politics have stalled. John told about four horses in the book of Revelation. He said the first one was white and he was conquest. The second was red, he called him war. The third was a black horse called famine and the fourth was a pale horse whose name was death and hell followed with him. Conquest, war, famine, death, And make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, these are not coming. They're here. Over the centuries, the systems we have created have been modified and manipulated and corrupted to to serve the few. People being resilient have learned to uh, survive despite these changes and The very trait that enabled us to survive is the very same trait that many times has suppressed us. Subtly, the cognitive map of our mind has been manipulated by an amazing assortment of campaigns to keep us in the dark. It's not what is said, but many, many times what is not said that is so critical I think this thing took a massive change in 1989 when despite the boast of Al Gore, a computer scientist named Tim Berners-Lee joined an HTTP client with a server and the internet was born. The internet has unleashed a tsunami of instantly accessible information. This is not the first time something like this has happened. Years ago, the world was in something known as the Dark Ages. 
The information of the world was controlled by kings and the ecclesiastical religious system of the Catholic Church. All of that changed when a guy by the name of Jonas Gutenberg created movable type and wrested the control of information away from the thrones and the pulpits of a dead church and a political machine. Today, this exchange of information is changing government, finance, media. It is quite possibly the greatest change the world has ever known. At the end of the Second War, 50%, of the world's gross domestic product came from this country. I was asked to write an article for a magazine one time and I began to study about Detroit and it stunned me to learn that in 1947, two years after the end of the Second War, this is an amazing statistic, 98% of all the vehicles in the world were made in the city of Detroit. Today, less than 1% of those vehicles are made in the city limits of Detroit. We were at that time, I guess what you would call the new Rome. But as Bob Dylan one time saying, the times, they are changing. Empires do not begin or end on a certain date, but mark it well, ladies and gentlemen, they do end. And as you study history, you'll see that from an unsatisfied mass, there usually comes a man, and that man creates a movement. In time, the movement becomes a machine, and after a while, the machine runs out of oil and turns into a monument. And then from another unsatisfied mass comes another man and another leader. People who study these events far smarter than I would ever hope to be and have given much more time than I have have divided empires into six legitimate phases and ages. An empire on the average throughout human history lasts 250 years, 10 generations from the early pioneers to the final conspicuous consumers that become a burden on the state. And if you are wondering about the math, the United States is today 246 years old. The first phase of an empire begins with pioneers who for whatever reason break away from the others and go to a new place, either mentally or physically, and that's where it begins. These pioneers are followed by conquerors who gobble up land and resources and and overthrow or literally throw out people to make way for the new. The conquerors are followed by something known as commerce. Because when the conquest is over, the land and its accompanying minerals and wealth are now available to this group of people. 
Commerce thrives and leads to the fourth level and the fourth age of an empire known as affluence. Affluence leads to the fifth, which is known as intellect. And that's followed by the final gasp of an empire, which is known as decadence. Look at our own nation, and you will read about the pioneers who fled religious tyranny in Europe and came to this land to worship freely. It was followed by a land grab that resulted in gobbling up land only stopped when the Pacific showed up. That's as far as they could go. And those conquerors enabled people to have access to this nation. This led to gold strikes in the Black Hills of the Dakotas and Sutter's Mill in California, the Yukon. Silver strikes, things like the Comstock Lode and Coal being dug by a guy named George Bissell, striking oil outside of Titusville, Pennsylvania. These things being dug and sucked out of the ground. Commerce had begun and the industrial age showed up. It resulted in what's known as the American dream. If you could have your own house with a little white picket fence and your own car. And that commerce led to affluence. And this affluence has allowed hardworking families to give their children a chance reserved formally for, for just the privileged few. Be able to send your kids to college. But those are now in our rearview mirror. And we have entered the last gasp of an empire known as decadence. Ages of this, through the, through the, through the years, this, they've all had the same traits. Empires who overextended their military and vainly tried to police the world. A very conspicuous display of wealth. A massive gap between the rich and the poor. A desire for millions to live off the bloated state. And finally, an obsession with sex. But without a doubt, one of the most terrible things that happened to empires that furthered their demise was the erosion of their currency. Years ago, Rome based everything on silver. But silver became so scarce that they made their coins out of copper and they lightly skinned them with silver. <laughs> but it was so thinly skinned that it wore off quickly. And in the end, Roman politicians realized what was happening and did all they could to hoard as much personal wealth as possible. In 1933, this country, along with Britain, went off of the gold standard. Every dollar that had been printed up until then had a gold reserve backing it up. But all that 
was gone after the Great Depression and they did everything they could <clears throat> to raise interest rates to keep people from having a run on the banks. Government service has been reduced to citizens who scramble for the spoils of power. And so the leading politicians of Rome knew that they needed a diversion to keep the people's minds off of their peril. So that's when the gladiators and the sporting events and the Colosseum was built to keep the people entertained while the politicians stole them blind. In May of 2018, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down a ban that we've always had on sports betting. The thought process is the same as the marijuana debate. Why let all the crooks make all the money? Let's make it legal so we can tax it and have better schools. So our highest lawmakers have decided to allow sports betting to be legalized across the country so it can be taxed and bloated politicians can get more money to waste on making sure they stay in office with their pet projects, which usually say, I'm protecting something. We've come to accept it. Scotty Scheffler was the number one golfer in America last year. He began his amazing run by winning the Masters in April last year in Augusta, Georgia. He made just shy of $3 million for four days' work. Last year, Steph Curry, a well-known basketball player, was paid $54 million to play basketball, and that did not include $42 million in endorsements. It's about $8,000 a minute per year. The numbers and salaries of our sports stars continue to climb like the charioteers and the gladiators of ancient Rome. I found a charioteer by the name of Diocles who in ancient Rome was paid the equivalent of today $3 billion because he was so good. I also found an amazing fact that right at the top of the celebrity world in ancient Rome were chefs. So Gordon Ramsay is not a a new thing on the radar. Donald Trump said we need to make America great again. But there's just too many people that don't feel great anymore. Everybody is out searching for it. Maybe it's in the best food. Maybe it's in the best clothes. The best music. Or how about this? You got to watch reality TV to have some reality in your life. Please listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. You can never get enough of what you don't need. What we have to have right now is a strong idea of who we are and where we're going. If your world was perfect, what would that look like right now? We live in a world where nothing is wrong anymore. You see, if I was Satan, 
I would take the highest creation of God, which is man and woman, and I would drag them through the cesspool and the dirt in front of their creator. And so the God of this world wants masculine women and feminine men were being just buried in an avalanche trying to convince this culture that's questioning their identity. This is being championed like abortion to take control. This is coupled with millions and millions of Americans who just don't care anymore. Let's just live off grid. Let's drill a hole in the ground. Let's put some solar panels. Let's get some chickens and some goats. And let's just let the rest of it go to hell. In physics, it's called entropy. Metal doesn't get shinier when you leave it outside in the yard and wood doesn't get more durable and harder. But in fact, metal rust and wood rots. Things go from order to chaos, entropy. Nothing is moving, people don't care. Listen to the opening paragraph of the Constitution. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And there it is, and there are those words, our posterity. Financial planners teach that your money should run out just as you do. I made a joke recently that I think I'll die after lunch. <laughs> Today, the national debt is $31 trillion. And before you blame it all on China and Joe Biden, you need to know that two-thirds of that money has been stolen from Social Security and Medicare, that these politicians are promising us they're going to pay it all back. That's why 65 is a myth, and 66 years and six months, and soon it'll be 70. But there are not just four horses mentioned in Revelation. There's another one. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he's not alone. According to Revelation 17, it says, And they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Here is a verse that you should remember. You are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a peculiar people. You have to show forth the praises of him that's called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Our posterity, in the middle of all this craziness that's going on, you must remember that Acts 2 does not end with verse 38. But the very next verse says, for the promise is unto you, and to your children. 
and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall go. Genesis 9 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. I, I, I don't claim to understand everything that this means. There is a verse in Leviticus 18 that says that when you lie with your father's wife, you have uncovered his nakedness. These are difficult verses and I, I just can't bring myself to believe that his sin was seeing daddy without his PJs. He did something so vile that when Noah woke up, it sickened him and he screamed, curse be Canaan. And this is what fascinates me. Canaan is Ham's boy, but he wasn't even born yet. And grandpa cursed his grandson because of what his dad did. The Bible said in Psalms 145 and verse four, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. In the original language, it literally means that you can worship God so proficiently in this generation that the next generation, which isn't even born yet, will hear you and will be affected by what you do. Genesis 14 tells the story of what is known as the slaughter of the kings. Abraham's nephew Lot has been taken captive along with others from Sodom and Gomorrah. You get a little insight into how great Abraham already was because four kings combined their armies to attack these cities. Abraham had an army of his own and his army defeated four combined armies of four kings. He is coming back from what is known as the slaughter of the kings. He allowed the inhabitants of, Lot, of Sodom and Gomorrah to <coughs> go through the stuff. Take care, is that your microwave? Is that your shotgun? Is that your couch? Is that your chair? Everything else he kept. He's wealthy before Genesis 14, but now he's fabulously and he meets this interesting character known as Melchizedek. And according to Genesis 14 and verse 20, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and gave a tenth to this priest. Verse 23, Abraham basically said, I don't want any of it. But the Lord said, oh no, you're going to keep it and you're going to honor my kingdom with your tithing. All of this is forgotten for many, many years until you come to Hebrews 7. Because if you're a student of the Bible, you know there's an Old Testament church called the Tabernacle of Moses. And just as this church has a staff, 
The tabernacle of Moses had a ministry staff and in order to be on the ministry staff in the tabernacle of Moses, you had to be a part of the tribe known as Levi. It says in Hebrews 7 and 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who Abraham, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Now there's been a great debate for many years. Who is Melchizedek? What was Melchizedek? Some people say he was a theophany, which means a brief appearance of God. I've never believed that because the Bible says Jesus was the only begotten son. Don't believe God showed up in flesh before Bethlehem. And the reason I believe that is in 7 and 4 of Hebrews it says, now consider how great this man was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithe of the people according to the law. But he whose descent, this is talking about Melchizedek, he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all consider Abraham the father of their faith. But in chapter 7 of Hebrews and verse 7, Abraham is referred to as the less. And Melchizedek is the better. And here men that die receive dies. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. Watch this. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth dies, paid dies. In Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Exodus 20 is known as the chapter with the Ten Commandments, but there is a verse in there that fascinates me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Abraham is first generation. Isaac is second generation. Jacob is third generation. Levi is fourth generation. Levi is the great grandson of Abraham. And yet, According to Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and gave a tenth to that priest, he literally put credit on the account of his unborn great-grandson. That when Levi got ready to pay tithes for the first time, it wasn't the first time. He already had credit on the books because of what his great-granddaddy had that you and I have the ability to affect 
our great-grandchildren. And they may not even be born yet. Betty Saylor's got some great-grandchildren. I got grandchildren. Some of you got children. It's not just about us. It's about our posterity. Unto you and to your children and all that are afar off. Understand that. Get that concept. I'm not just here living for myself. It's not just about me. I, myself, mine. It's a servant leadership. That's what ministry is all about. Jesus is sitting Simon's house. He's tired. People are pulling at him, wanting different things from him. All of a sudden, this woman who used to be a prostitute realizes he's tired, he's weary. She breaks that box, probably the perfume that she had previously used for only her best, most exclusive clients. But she breaks that box and that room is filled with that aroma and she's wiping his dirty feet with her hair. And Jesus said, everywhere the gospel is preached, I want you to tell this story because this woman has given a memorial unto me. It's just not about what can Jesus do for me. That's what it's, this is a woman that's ministering to the minister. I'm not as your pastor asking you to give me stuff. I'm trying to explain something to you. It's credited with John F. Kennedy, but it was, it, it was a quote from, from a man many, many, many years before Kennedy ever lived. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Don't ask what the church can do for you. What can you do for the church? What can my community give me? Pastor Mike is a part of the ecumenical council in this city. All pastors, church city leaders from the city going to these pastors and say, what can we do for you? Well, we need you to fix the road in front of our church. We need you to do something more for our seniors. When they came to Pastor Mike Neto, they said, Pastor Neto, what can we do for you? He said, no, no, that's my question. You don't owe us nothing. What can we do for you? It stunned and it changed the whole environment and the temperature of that room to understand I'm not here to get, I'm here to give. Let me challenge you with this something right now. Do you, do you, are you invested in this youth group? Do you, I I never forget Kinto's story about, he said, when I, I, I I did foolish things, Brother Hoffman, but I'd come to church and your daddy would find me every service and wrap his arms around me and say, I love you, boy, and you're going to make it and you're a good one. And he said, it wasn't just the guilt that would sweep over me, but it was, it was the gratitude of someone that believed in me. And he said, thank God I lived to be able to see that old man's prophecy come true. Don't just come to church and leave. Amen. Don't just come around the altar and just sit here and just and be an island to yourself. Love on somebody. Minister to somebody. Do you, are you involved with these? Do you have any idea how many young people we have in this youth group who don't have parents? And what those that do have parents aren't involved in the kingdom at all. They're doing everything they can to make it. They're on life support. You are CPR to those people. Hug on them. Love on them. Have invested in them. 
This is important, ladies and gentlemen. This is about our posterity. And I don't care how goofy these politicians get. You could just, just die of depression all you want. But if you're a faith-based life person right now, you've got to realize this. Promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. The puppet master of the universe is making marinettes out of these politicians. They don't even know it. You would have never heard the name Nebuchadnezzar if it wasn't for what he did in the kingdom. And you would have never heard of these people either today if it's not what they're doing. They are, they are ministers of the Lord. They are setting this thing up. Jesus is coming. You understand that? Quit living in despair and fear and think these people are in control. They are not in control. The Lord Almighty, omnipotent, reign. Yes, you ought to vote. It's a privilege that a lot of blood's been shed. But just like you're tithing, once that thing's done, give it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. Let him lead your life. Let him be on the throne in your life. You read the book of Isaiah, and thou shalt call his name Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Prince, Prince. Do you understand a prince is powerless? A prince can do nothing. That's why when you read the writings of Paul, he never refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. He refers to him as the King of Peace. Jesus Christ cannot just remain in the halls, in the aisles, in the corridors of your life. Put him on the throne. Make him king. If you'll make him king, it says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. If your confidence is in the political systems of this world, good luck. You better button your chin strap because you're in for a bumpy career path. But if you'll put him on the throne, Lord lifts him up, God takes him down. I am a servant. I'm a servant. Doulos, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the master. I do your bidding. Tell me what you want me to do. If your life could be perfect, what would it look like? Would it just be you and your full barns? Or would you be able to go and understand that your blessing leads you into ministry and into missions? That's what a perfect life looks like. What's your epitaph going to be? When daddy was buried, they asked me, do you have anything you want to put on his tombstone? Oh, sure, I got it. I didn't have to think. I said three things called, chosen, faithful. When you are capable of writing your own epitaph, that's when you know you're an adult. What do you want to be remembered for? When it's all done, it's all melted down to the base elements. What are they going to remember you for? Are you going to be stingy, self-centered, and just worried about you? Or are you going to be a giver and a forgiver? And let the blessing and the power of God flow through your life into the many tributaries that he's willing to extend your ministry into. If you just understand, this is an age of consequence. It says, Adam was first formed and then Eve. 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. I read about a lady in New England, a doctor, who had a theory that when a mother gave birth, she retained in her body what were known as fetal cells. She believed that when mother got sick, those fetal cells that were still lingering in her body as a result of giving birth to those children would come to her aid and expedite her healing and her recovery. After three years of blind studies, she proved her hypothesis and found out that when a mother gives birth to children, lingering in that mother is the power to heal her own body. See, moms aren't supposed to get sick. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, I've proven to you without a doubt, the church is our mother. And the church isn't supposed to get sick. But according to Revelation, every now and then one does. You know what heals a church? Childbearing. If we stay as we are, we're going to get sick. But the more children we give birth to, there's a healing power in the birth of children that'll keep the mother church healthy and well in this very troubled, turbulent time. Join us. Do everything you possibly can to make give birth right now. I'm inviting you around this altar, but before you come, I have one caveat. I've got one request. If you come, you are publicly saying, I'm going to be involved in somebody's life other than my own. In Jesus' name. You want to sing for us, my dear? You've just done a wonderful job. I want you to come around this altar. I want you to pray for somebody other than yourself. I want, I, 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 can you pray as intense for somebody else's children as you pray for your own? Tomorrow night, I'll be at prayer. I don't know when it'll happen, but I promise you that somewhere tomorrow night, I'm gonna have my eyes closed, but I'll recognize the voice. Mike Parsons will get beside of me and said, dear Lord, I pray for my pastor and for his wife. I pray for his daughters, Brittany and Ashley. I pray for his granddaughters, Parker and Cameron. I pray for his his son-in-law, Joshua. Every Monday, this good man prays for my family with just as much fervor as he prays for his own. I can't tell you what it means to me. It's valuable treasure it. We're going to sing. I want you to pray right now. You may feel led to put your hand on someone and minister to them in prayer right now. You think you know them well, but you may not. I'm telling you, there are things in this room that most of you have no idea what's going on. Real 
real consequential things, life or death stuff. We need an intervention of the Holy Ghost. Jesus' name. Sing away, my dear. Full of faith and wonder, I will say no other name but Why don't you pray for somebody right now?
I understand that you, you are far above all principality and power. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Father, I'm glad to have you as my king. I honor you, your majesty. But this is not a republic and majority doesn't rule. Amen. You said one and put a thousand to flight and two and put 10,000 to flight. For you said two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You said we're to agree on earth as touching any one thing, it shall be done. No, I'm not in the majority, but I am on the side of the king. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I give you my life. I give you my home. I give you my family. I give you my time. I give you my money. I ask you, Lord, ask you, God, what will this be remembered for? In Jesus' name. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. In Jesus' name.